In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. It took a plane crash and 112 people dying to get your attention. But now that I have it, I'm so glad that I do. And now that I have your attention, I want I want to tell you about my son. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm your host for the show, Jim Ramos. And guys, I got to tell you, I'm really excited about our guest today. This guy is a plane crash survivor, and he actually saved the life of someone else immediately following the plane crash. So that's an exciting story, and he's going to tell you about his journey since that day. But before we get into that, I want to share a man law with you. And as you remember, guys, our man laws are supplied by you, our heroes. So when we uh, use yours, uh, just hit us up at info at and we'll send you some men in swag just to say thank you. And guys, this week's man law is awesome. You guys have some amazing man laws. And I got to tell you, when we compile a big enough list, I'm going to put a little book together for you guys with all of our man laws in there. And I'll give you full credit, of course. Anyway, David from Florida says this, when a man gets a splinter, metal or wood, he must use a pocket knife or a utility blade to self-extract the, the splinter, avoiding tweezers, his wife, or, God help him, a doctor. I think that is so true. I'm like, get the tweezers down, pick up your pocket knife, don't wind your wife, and dude, if you go to the doctor for a tweezer or for a splinter, I don't know, man, that is, that. just stop listening to this podcast. I mean, we got a, we can, we've got a snowflake podcast that I think you'll really love. So anyway, I'm just kidding, guys. Hey, guys, this week's hero story uh, is from a, a friend of ours named Brandon. And uh, I think Brandon's in Illinois. And guys, uh, our hero stories highlight you and what God is doing through your life and how God is using men in the arena to impact you and those you love. So guys, when we use yours, again, we want to send you some swag for being a hero uh, in your story. So you just hit us up at info at menandarena.org again, and we'll shoot you some swag to say thanks. So, so to send us a hero story, you can simply click the podcast tab and click send us your hero story. This is on the website. And rec- you can record your hero story and make it audible, or you can just uh, hit us up at info at menandarena.org, shoot it over there, or hit us up on Instagram. Uh, it's tough on Instagram because we have thousands of thousands of people interacting. 
But if we see it, we'll definitely use it. But it's better to send us an email or just go right to our website. So, guys, here this is from Brandon, and he said this. I started reading Tell Them, which is your free online book with my family during dinner. It has led to some great conversations. My kids enjoy hearing about their parents and appreciate sharing our experiences with them. The questions they have are insightful and remind us of how important these discussions are with our family. It has grown us much closer as a family. Brandon, thanks so much for sending that. Uh, That is super encouraging, man. Gosh, that is great. He's taken uh, our free online book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell Their Sons and Daughters, and he's using it as a devotional over meals. That is amazing. Well done, man. Well done. So, guys, I want to bring our guest on today. I'm really, really excited about this guy. Uh, This is uh, Jerry Schemmel. Some of you have heard of him, I'm sure, especially those of you living in Colorado. He's 62 years old. He's been married to his beautiful wife, Diane, for 36 years. Jerry grew up in Madison, South Dakota, and attended Washburn University where he played baseball. His love for baseball brought him back to coach at the high school and college level. He spent 10 seasons as a radio broadcaster for the Colorado Rockies and 18 seasons in the same role with the Denver Nuggets. Ah, you Colorado people know who I'm talking about now. He's authored two books, including our subject for today, Chosen to Live, that chronicles his experience from surviving the crash of flight 232 in 1996. Hey, guys, again, I'm excited to bring uh, Jerry Schemmel on. Jerry, how you doing, man? Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You, you must be desperate for a guest, huh, if you're having me on? I was desperate. I, I was like, I just put my <laughs> name in a phone book, and it was like, Jerry, what? I'll call the guy. <laughs> All right. Oh, man, it's just. Let's do it. Yeah, it's fun, man. Hey, uh, can you just take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about your uh, yourself, your your personal life, things you enjoy, family, whatever you feel like these guys need to hear. Yeah, I've been in broadcasting gym for a long time, uh, 30 plus years. I spent 20 uh, years in the NBA and 10 in Major League Baseball doing play-by-play. Been living in Denver for 30 plus years now. Uh, My wife and I have been married 36 years. I can't believe it's been that long. And uh, we got a couple of kids. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Got a couple of kids. One is 29 and the other is 22. Our daughter is... uh, 8.77 8.77 months along with our second ground grandchild. She's due uh, in a couple of days, so uh, we're excited about that. And, and uh, so we've got one granddaughter, uh, Maggie's our daughter, and our son-in-law is David. And then we have a 22-year-old son, Ryan, who I talk to, Jim, every single day, not because I really like the guy, but because he's got a computer science degree. So he answers all my computer questions for me. No, he's a great kid. So uh, blessed with a beautiful family and uh, just uh, loving life these days. Wow. So you're a, a few years older than me, but your kids are about the same age. I've got a 23-year-old who uh, just finished his uh, fifth year at Linfield University playing football there. And so, uh, you know, it's fun when you don't like your kids, but you need them. Yeah, exactly. that's a good thing. Exactly right. <laughs> when yes, you're younger, I mean. when they're younger, when they're younger, if you don't like them, you're stuck with them. But when they're right. older, if if you don't like them, and you've got, you know, I'm just, I'm just messing around. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, hey, you know, um, I'm. You sent me a video, and it, it is just mind blowing, Jerry. And I want to camp on this video and and a personal experience you had way back in 1996. You had a life-changing moment, and we've got a lot of guys listening to this show right now. You know, they're driving to work. Uh, they're uh, regular American guys. From Most of them are from small towns. Uh, these guys are trying to raise a family, love their wife, and uh, do it in a real strange time in history. And a lot of these guys have uh, really struggled. 
They've lost loved ones. They've lost jobs. And I really think your your story can impact them because you overcame tragedy and you've had a, a wonderful life. But I think you've learned some great lessons that you can pass on these guys. Will you tell us about that flight on that day in 1996 when you boarded flight 232 and what happened? Yeah. Uh, and, and Jim, I appreciate you letting me share this story and I've done a lot and I've been blessed by, by doing that. So thank you for that. Um, let me preface Jim by saying this. And my wife said this a long time ago, and I think it's so accurate. Um, everybody has their own plane crash. It might not be as bad as oh. what I went through. It might be worse. I've, I've never had to bury a child. I mean, there, everybody has their own plane. You've got yours, Jim. I don't know what it is. Dale's got his, um, but everybody has their own plane crash. So when I tell the story, I don't mean to downgrade what other people have gone through, but uh, yeah, I, I boarded a plane uh, bound for Chicago from Denver. I was with my boss, great friend of mine, a guy named Jay Ramsdale. I was working back then in the minor league system for the NBA, the Continental Basketball Association. We took off for Chicago, got about halfway there, two-hour flight from Denver to Chicago. Uh, the number two engine in the DC-10 we were flying in blew up, basically disintegrated, caused a lot of damage to the plane. We tried to make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa, and um, leaving out a lot of details, but uh, they, one of the things they couldn't do, Jim, the cockpit crew couldn't slow the plane down enough to have a safe landing. Every time they tried to slow the plane down to get to a place where they could land it, they would lose control of it. It would, it would bank off to the right. And we almost, uh, nosedived a couple of times that way. So a normal DC 10 landing is about 125 miles an hour. When you touch the ground, we hit it 255 miles an hour, which by itself oh, just spells, yeah, just spells disaster. Plus, they just had no control of no steering, no brakes, no aileron, elevator. All that stuff is eliminated because of that explosion. So we hit down and and uh, bounced a couple of times and then slid about 1,200 feet, flipped over, and the uh, plane broke into four big pieces and literally thousands of little ones. And uh, the result was when everything came to a stop, 112 people died, 110 that day and two more later in the week. So there were 296 of us aboard. So 112 died. So about a third of the people uh, didn't make it, including my buddy, my, my, my boss and great friend. So yeah, that was, uh, and, and I say this to Jim and uh, I'm sure you, you want to get into it, but uh, the plane crash itself was almost the easy part dealing with all the post-trauma stress that came with that, all the, 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 the negativity that kind of trailed that with everybody to survive the crash was really, really difficult. So, um, that's kind of a nutshell what happened is that that plane crash in 1989 took the lives of 112 people, including everybody right around me. Everybody died. Wait, what was the year of the crash? 1989. Oh, I'm sorry. I was confused. I thought it was 1996. That must be the year you wrote your book, yep. Chosen to Live. That is it. Okay. Exactly. My apologies for that. No, and no you, um, did the crew survive? They did everybody, Jim, but one flight attendant. So there were, I think there were uh, six flight attendants. So five of them survived. And then uh, there were actually four people in the cockpit at the end, uh, three originally. And then there was actually a DC-10 training instructor sitting back with us. He came up to help. So uh, amazingly, and this is one of the many miracles from this, this crash, Jim, but um, there were four people in that cockpit, which is normally about seven and a half feet from floor to ceiling. When we hit the ground, it broke off and the, the rest of the plane rolled over, they think, between 15 and 20 times and was compressed to three feet inside that cockpit. And all four of those guys survived. 
somehow they all survive, which is just miraculous. I've got pictures of the cockpit, unrecognizable, just like, like, a, like a piece of a wreckage. Well, my wife's a flight attendant, so she's really going to love oh. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I saw – so the, the plane – they knew the plane was crashing because you have video footage of the actual crash. Yeah. And I saw, I saw the crash and it is brutal. And so, um, so where did the plane actually land? We, we actually got to to a runway at Sioux gateway airport in Sioux city, uh, which by itself is almost a miraculous too. And captain Al Haynes is our cockpit captain. And he told me one time, he said, we just went around in circles because the plane kept wanting to bank off to the right. So every time, Jim, they got on heading for Sioux City, the plane on its own it would veer off. We'd, we'd get off course. And so we went around five times trying to get to the airport. And Captain Ames told me one time, he said, you know, we went around five times. And on the fifth turn, there was a, a runway right in front of us. So just almost miraculous that they w- we got to the airport in Sioux City. And so how old were you at the time? 29. So you said in the a crash, Jerry, that 112 died. Then you said something parenthetically that I want to go back to. You said you lost your best friend. Yeah. So tell us about him and tell us about what happened there. Yeah. Uh, Despite what the media said afterwards, Jim, we weren't sitting next to each other. Uh, A DC-10 has 37 rows. Jay was in row 30. Uh, Jay Ramsdale, my my great friend, I was in row 23. So we're separated by seven rows. So in a DC-10, there's two aisles, and I had the aisle on my right. And when I looked back, I could see Jay against the window, seven rows back in in row 30. So as it turned out, um, that's about where when when we hit down and then broke into pieces, that's about where he was sitting, that tail section broke off from us. And where he was in that tail section, it caught fire and burnt very badly. In fact, uh, I don't think they identified Jay's body until Sunday night. Yeah. And the crash happened on a Wednesday afternoon. So it was after talk about uh, a nightmare. His parents actually flew to Sioux city with his dental records and got him identified that way. So yep. Lost a, lost a great one. He was the Jim, he was the youngest commissioner in the history of professional sports. He was the commissioner of this continental basketball association, which was the NBA's. Oh, really? Yeah. At the age of 24. So he was Oh, wow. Yeah, brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. Would have been, I think, would have been an NBA commissioner or, or some pretty heavy heavy hitter someday. And then what did you say you were flying to? I, I didn't catch that. Yeah, we're flying from Denver to Chicago. And Jay and I were going to make a connection in Chicago, go on to Columbus, Ohio. Next day in Columbus was a CBA's college draft. We're going to draft our players. So that's where we're heading there on business for sure. Okay, so it wasn't a team of guys. It was a no. just a normal flight. Okay, yep. I understand now. So yep. so was it the fire that killed the 112 people or was it the crash? Was it a combination of both? What 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 what, what did they get thrown from the plane? How did this yeah. transpire? Yeah, you know, we we hit down so incredibly hard that that uh, as soon as we touched the ground. It was complete chaos inside the plane. I mean, we hit down Jim so hard. We just slammed into the, the runway and people being thrown about as soon as we hit the ground, it was some still strapped in their chairs, the chairs had given and they were thrown in that. So to answer your question, the NTSB said it was about half and half. It was about half the people who died 
died on impact or some kind of blunt trauma from hitting the ground and the other half either burnt or smoke inhalation killed them. So where I was, it, there, there wasn't a lot of uh, burning. There was, there were just people that were, that, that died on the impact where I was. And I was in a, uh, ended up in a piece of plane that was about a uh, road 20 through about 28 or 29. And uh, there were 52 people in our little section and 26 lived. So we're right at 50% fatality. Oh, rate. wow. So, so you're, you're on the ground, there's chaos everywhere. I'm assuming you're, you're buckled in. So you unbuckle and climb out of the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Came to a halt. I'm, I'm still, we flipped over and then started sliding upside down and backwards. And so when we came to a halt, I was still hanging upside down in my chair. My chair's intact. My seatbelt's intact. One of the very few people in my area in that position. Most people had been thrown from their chair. But, yeah, uh, when we came to stop, uh, dropped down the ceiling because we're upside down now. And eventually made my way to the back of the plane and, and got out that way where uh, others did the same thing. So you're in a you're on an airport, but you're actually in a field at this point. Yeah, yeah, we ended up in a cornfield next to the airport in Sioux City. In fact, we okay. were about, uh, I'm told, almost a quarter of a mile from the runway. So where I was, the plane broke into so many pieces, Jim, they went different directions. And where I was, I think, was the furthest away from the airport and the runway. So we were about, a, I think we were about uh, 300 yards into a cornfield. And so we were the last group from that crash that got any assistance uh, with the rescue effort. So you actually were walking out of that carnage and you ended up saving a life. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. I got, you know, I got outside the plane initially that first time and I was praying the cat in that, um, in that section, maybe, I don't know, three minutes or so until I finally made my way back out, found the opening where the back of the plane had broken off from us. And uh, I remember standing there thinking, all right, maybe I can grab somebody else on my way out because I knew I could get out at that point. And I didn't see anybody I could grab. We're completely full of smoke now. And I stepped into the cornfield, Jim. And let me let, let me preface before I tell you what happened next by saying, in my mind, it was just that. It was something that happened. Because I came out of this crash labeled a hero. And I'm not trying to downplay what I did or be overly humble. But um, I, I never felt that hero tag fit. It never felt right to me. And here's what happened. Mm -hmm. I got inside the plane. I heard a baby crying back inside the wreckage and I didn't think it through. I didn't weigh any risk. I didn't, I didn't think a thing might explode or I might not find my way back out. The next thing I know inside the plane on all fours over top the crying. And amazingly, there was a 11 month old baby who had been sitting in row 11 way up behind first class thrown to the back of the plane in probably row 25 or 26. Oh my goodness. Yeah, ends up inside an overhead bin that, that closes and locks on her. So we're upside down. So I'm feeling around. I finally figured out she's inside an overhead bin. So I. Oh, my I, gosh. Yeah, I, I got the lid open, lifted latch, got the lid open, grabbed the baby and then shot out the plane the second time. And that's just the way that it happened. If that's heroic in somebody's mind, that's great. But I, I know I didn't think it through. I didn't weigh any of that risk. Well, I wonder if the heroic part was that you had trained yourself all those decades before what were you 24 years old at the time 29 yeah 29 you had trained yourself for almost three decades to live a certain way and then when this event happened it was second nature you know i just wrote a book it's coming out this week called guts and manhood the four irrefutable attributes of courage mm -hmm. and i studied every time the word courage is mentioned in the bible 
And it's really interesting because the last attribute is a characteristic over time. And it's when men choose over and over again in their daily life to live courageously, that it becomes just a character trait. And so I would say you probably had trained yourself through sports and discipline and uh, nurturing other people in, and just being a man of integrity. I would say that you probably had it so inherent in you, it didn't feel heroic at the time, but many probably would have turned and run the other way. Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. And other people have said the same thing. My my parents said that. It's like, well, we, we're proud because we think we raised you the right way. You didn't run away from danger like that. And I think there is something to that too, Jim. And I, and I also think this, we had, this is a factor. We had 45 minutes from the time of the explosion until we touched down in Sioux City. So we had time to think about a lot of things. And one of the things I thought about was, hey, don't panic. Don't flee the plane. Help other people. As be- if you're dead, you're not going to be able to help. But if you're not, don't panic and flee the plane. Help other people and, and see if you can just uh, uh, you know, do the right thing when, once we got to the ground. So I think that paid off for me. And, and that's exactly how it unfolded. It was complete chaos, but I, I kind of kept my senses. And I think everybody else did the same thing. So, Jerry, I got a question for you, and I don't know if I'm going to put this on a tee for you to hit or if it's going to be a total foul ball, but were you a follower? I have found that guys that are committed followers of Jesus are the most courageous men I've ever met. Were you a follower of Jesus then? I was not. I was not. I was as far, <laughs> I was as far from foul that ball. as you could possibly. <laughs> no, I foul was as ball. Far from that. Oh, man. And this, you know, oh, that's I, so I was thinking. I was thinking about this before we came on, before I came on with you. This is probably 30 years ago, the last thing yeah. I'd be doing. Seriously, talking to somebody about Jesus on a, on, <laughs> on a podcast or a broadcast, like, man, that's the last thing I thought. I had no spiritual foundation whatsoever. I was a little bit like Paul in the Bible. I'd made fun of Christians, and I thought they were weak, and, uh, and it took a plane crash to get me to be a, a believer, which is pretty sad. But no, I was as far from it as you can imagine back then. Well, so before I get into this whole plane crash life change thing, tell me about the little baby. Have you, whatever happened to her? Yeah. I wish I could tell you that that story ended really cool and it didn't. Um, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, Jim. I, I, I wish I could go back and write the script differently. Uh, Sabrina Michelson was her name. She passed away in 2008, 2007 um, of a drug overdose. She was 20 years of age and beautiful young woman. Oh sophomore at Arizona State. And we don't know whether it was accidental or suicidal. We think it's accidental. She was uh, running with the wrong crowd, according to her parents, and, and doing doing drugs. And just one day didn't wake up, took too much the night before and never woke up. So uh, I was very close to her. Uh, we, we connected and, and corresponded for 20 years, literally, uh, both uh, she and her parents. So uh, and then, you know, one day, Jim, I realized, like, my, she hasn't, she hasn't, like, texted or emailed or, you know, for a long time. I haven't heard from her for a long time. So I, I, I do some research and I find out she's, she's gone. So no one told oh. me, no one needed to tell me, but I didn't know about it for about two months. Oh. And then I found out and it was just really devastating. Now were her parents on that plane crash or on the plane? They were, they were. Yeah. She had two brothers and her. So all five survived that crash. Incredibly. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you said something. Oh, say, so tell me about, Tell me about subsequent to the plane crash and your faith was, did your, did your faith in Christ happen because of the crash? How did this transpire? 
It absolutely did. Yes is the answer mm-hmm. to that question. You know, I, I was suffering from post-trauma stress disorder like everybody else who survived the crash, and I didn't understand it. I had never heard that term. And things are just falling apart. My marriage is, is falling apart. I quit my job. I had six brothers and sisters, and I wasn't even returning their telephone calls. I was in, I was wallowing in, in depression, I'm sure. And then, uh, Jim, one day I realized that for the first time in third, I had always been able to do things on my own. I, I worked my way through college and law school. My parents never gave me a penny for anything. I'd always done things on my own, and I could not get back up. I was knocked down after this plane crash, and I could not pick myself back up. And one day, I just decided that I needed some help, and that help was to was come from the Lord. And I just realized that uh, for the first time in my life, I couldn't do this thing by myself. I wasn't going to be able to to get out of this hole that I had somehow fallen into. And I just asked God to come into my life. Jim, it wasn't to save my marriage, get a new job, or come out of depression. It's God, just give me something to hold on to because I cannot do this by myself anymore. And when I said that, something happened. And it wasn't it wasn't an audible voice. I wasn't going crazy. It wasn't kind of physical sensation. This is overwhelming feeling of contentment and peace that said to me that because of what I had just done, and more importantly, the ally I invited into my life, that I was going to win every single battle. I, wow. I just knew that like I'd known nothing in my life before. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And But I knew that I had the right person fighting the battle with me, so I was going to win eventually. And that's that's when it all started. I just uh, – I I – surrendered to God, I believe, and just let him take over my life. And I started reading the Bible, which I'd never done before, and realized that if I wanted to be like my wife, who was a beautiful Christian woman, um, I needed to I needed to surrender to Jesus and, and, and ask him into my life. And I did that about two weeks after that moment. And Jim, I got to say, it's the greatest thing that I've ever done. It's the greatest decision that I've ever made in my whole life. It's amazing. Well, you know, and Jerry, this is what we tell guys over and over again. Guys, listen, if you want to be your best version, if you want to overcome the plane crashes and the train wrecks in your life, it's not about being a Christian. It's about radical devotion to Jesus Christ. So I know a lot of you guys out there are saying you're a Christian, but question to you is, have you radically given your life to Jesus? Because that's where the life change starts. So, so Jerry, so back to this story. So I was going to ask you this question. Why Jesus? Why not Buddha or Hare Krishna or, you know, some other thing? But your wife was a believer. And how long had she been a believer prior to your salvation? Uh, her, her whole, almost her whole life. She, she made a decision at age 11, I think. So from the moment I met her, she was that Christian woman. And I just kind of went along with that, Jim, uh, because I was in love with her. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. And I went to church with her once in a while. Um, That's how strong an emotion love can be. It'll make a guy go to church with a woman. That's pretty pretty strong stuff right there. Um, And, you know, I started thinking about her and this incredible strength she had. And I always admired it, but I kept it at a distance. And then when this happened, I just thought, you know, why not? I'm going to ask her about it. What? Who is Jesus? What's he all about? Why do I have to make this decision for him? And and to answer your question, I looked everywhere. I looked at all the religions. And, and here, here's here's the answer to your question, Jim. Christianity, I found, was the only religion in the world that says you can't earn your way to God. Yep. That it comes through yep. faith and not through works. And every other religion is that way. You scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. You do you do the right things. You can earn your way to salvation. Christianity says, no, 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 no. Christ has already paid that for us. 
All you have to do is believe. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. Just believe that Jesus was God's son. And when you do that, you make that decision for him. Then you have your sins forgiven and your spot in heaven secured. So to answer your question, it's the only religion in the world that says you don't have to earn it. You just have to believe. And I, and I love that. I absolutely loved it. Well, and what, got, what led me to Christ was this concept of not only can I not earn it, but I can have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ as he bridges that gap. And to me, as a guy who loves the outdoors, I spend many, many nights, early, early mornings in the pitch black staring at the stars going, man, there's got to be something up there. And I realized I can have a relationship with that someone up there. It was life-changing. And so that is that is so powerful. And, you know, the thing about it too, Jerry, is that, you know, to me, to me, man, theology is simple. I, the, you know, God loves you. God made you. He has a mission for your life, and he has he has a plan for you as a man. And if those things are actually true, and if we actually believe them, how can a man ever become his full capacity without radical commitment to the one who made him? That's what I don't understand. Does that mean, you know what I'm saying? Yes, I I totally understand what you're saying, and I feel the same way. No no question about it. And I try to tell I try to tell men that all the time. It, but uh, we're it, a little stubborn. Radical devotion. Yeah, we're yeah, a little stubborn. Absolutely. Well, we have a we we have a saying over here: when a man gets it, everyone wins. Okay, so I really believe that with all my heart. So at this stage of your journey, pre-salvation, your wife has she gets it. She's a Christian woman. You are not a Christian man. Where are your kids in their faith journey? They they both uh, are the same way. They're both uh, they're both Christians. They both made decisions for Christ uh, in their teens, and uh, and that's the one great thing we 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 love about our kids is they have made that decision both of them. So um, and they're they're probably not as vocal about it as I am. Probably nobody is in my family, but uh, <laughs> they sure are believers, and, and we feel you know if we ever we ever lose our kids, we know where to find them. And if they lose us, then they know where to find us. So that's, yep. uh, that gives us a lot of. So how did your faith affect the faith of your wife and your kids? Yeah, I, I think it, uh, it certainly brought my wife and I closer, which I didn't think it happened. We had a great marriage and, and we had been mid- married four years, Jim, at the time of the crash. And I thought it was an awesome marriage. But, you know, once I uh, made this decision for Christ, everything just seems to, in a relationship, uh, get better, get stronger, especially with a spouse. And uh, I, I just think that's uh, you, what you're trying to do is, as a man is be more like Jesus. And the more you're like Jesus, the more your wife's going to love you. <laughs> I found oh, that yeah. So, um, that's yeah. I mean, it's it's night and day. So. Um, am I perfect? Heck no. I make mistakes all the time and frustrate the heck out of my wife. And she does that to me sometimes too. It's not perfect, but when you strive to be like Jesus, then that thing seems to kind of take care of itself. And that's the difference between me and a lot of my friends, um, who, who are Christians, but they're not radically changed. Like I am. They're not, they're not uh, thumping people over the head. Like I try to do in my life. So (laughs) that's, that's probably the biggest difference. Oh, that's so fun to hear that. So I've been saving. I'm the same way. I'm like, I see so many people out there struggling with their faith. And and the reason why I think they struggle is because they recognize that as a follower of Jesus, we are in the minority. We're in the minority. Yeah. And so they feel like they're always on the defensive. Well, I look at uh, 2 Timothy 
2, I think it's verse 26, where Paul says, I just pray that these guys come to their senses. And so I enter a situation going, man, I am in the minority. Most of the world more uh, stands against me because of what I believe or stands against my faith. How invigorating. I got a whole lot of people we get to win to Christ. And so it, I'm not on the defensive, I'm on the offensive. And I think that's a real difference between a guy who stays in the game and a guy who taps out or, exactly or kind of right. settles into yep. anonymity, right? Yep, exactly right. And it's so easy to do, and I get it. And, and you're so true, Jim. Uh, we're in the minority. Yep. And I think being a Christian in society is really hard. Uh, it's it, you're, you're going to if you become a follower of Christ, you're going to lose something. You're going to lose a relationship, a friendship. You might lose a marriage. You might it doesn't happen in the States, but uh, too much. But you might lose your life if you're preaching yeah. the gospel somewhere where people don't want to hear it. So you're going to lose something. And it's it's not it's not easy. And I'll give you a good example here, Jim. At the 25th anniversary of the crash. So seven years ago, I was doing the Rockies games and a local television station came out to interview me about the 25th anniversary. Is it Coors Field? We're in the stands. Beautiful afternoon. It was a night game, so there's nobody around. So this reporter asked me, well, this question, she said, how is it you've been able to move forward and achieve a bunch of things in your life and do all this broadcasting stuff when so many people who survived your crash had just gone stale? They've just they've been stagnant and they can't get past the crash. And my answer was, and it was it was an honest answer. I said, it's because of the inner strength I get from a relationship with Jesus. Yes. And you know what they did? They edited out that question and that answer for the nightly news. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I can't win. I mean, even when I'm trying to share my faith, it gets interrupted. So I know how difficult that can be. We're always going to be in the minority. People are always going to be against us. But this is what I've learned, Jim. That is that God wants you to hang in there. Yeah. Defend his son. Defend the gospel no matter what. You don't have to argue with people about it, but just be yourself and, and keep on believing. And when you do that, people are going to see that faith you have and that, that commitment you have to Christ, and it's going to rub off on people. That's what I, I, I found throughout my life is that, you know what, just defend the gospel. Even when people are throwing things, throwing stones at you, defend the gospel, defend Jesus, and the right thing will happen. Yeah, what is it? First Peter 3.15, be prepared in season, out of season to get a to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. You know, we started practicing something about a year ago, and I still do it to this day, where whenever we go out to eat, I get the waitress's name, and then uh, I ask them, hey, we pray for our food. How can we pray for you? And it has led to some of the most amazing ministry experiences because I want people to know that 20% tip would be about a 2% tip if I wasn't following Jesus, and uh, you're going to know about it even if I invade your life just for an hour. It's super important. Well, well, so I, you know, I, I, one of my favorite TV shows is an old HBO series called Band of Brothers, and it, it chronicles World War II and the 101st Division Airborne, uh, you know, during a D-Day plus, you know, through the end of the war. And there's a scene as they're going into Bastogne. It's freezing. They don't have the their winter clothing. They're out of ammo, uh, and the scene shows a, a guy delivering ammunition, and he's talking to uh, Dick Winters, and he says. You you know you're going into Bastogne, you're going to be surrounded. And Winters says, "We're paratroopers, uh, Sergeant. We're supposed to be surrounded." And that's the part that, <laughs> as believers, we need to realize that we are supposed to be surrounded. And so we need to. De- this is important. So I want to go back to something. I've been holding off on this because this is really 
to me, the power in your story, you said something very early on. You said we every you said everybody in life will experience a plane crash. And then about 10 minutes later, you said something even more powerful. You said sometimes it takes a plane crash. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I can, Jim. Uh, and I'll answer it this way. Um, when I look back at the at the crash and that experience I went through, the crash itself and the, the year afterward where I really struggled before I made this most important decision in my life, I see this. I see God saying to me, Jerry, I finally got your attention. It, it took a plane crash and 112 people dying to get your attention. But now that I have it, I'm so glad that I do. And now that I have your attention, I want I want to tell you about my son. And I get emotional when I say this, but yeah, um, I want to tell you about my son. And more importantly, I want you to spend the rest of your life telling other people about my son. So, Jim, that's that's the reason I survived the plane crash so that I could do this. So I could be on your podcast and I could tell people about Jesus and especially other men who might be going through their own plane crash in their life. So um, that's that's what it took. I'm ashamed that it took a plane crash to get my attention and, and to listen to God. But that's who I was. And it took that for God to get my attention because he knew how stubborn I was. And I tell that to men all the time. God is, he's tapping you on the shoulder. And if you don't turn around and look and answer him, he's going to keep doing it. And he's going to do something. Then he's going to slug you in the chest. And he's just going to, he's relentless until he gets your attention because that's how much he loves you. And that's how much he wants you with him for eternity. Well, so you see that football helmet right there. That's Santa Clara university. I uh, had a, ACL reconstruction, which I know you're familiar with that stuff. And uh, the surgery went bad. I was overdosed by the anesthesiologist, went code blue, was blind for three days. And in that moment, God spoke to me and called me into full-time ministry. And I was a 19-year-old kid at the time. And and that was a plane crash that God set up for me. But a lot of our guys listening today have set up their own plane crash. What can you say to those guys that are walking? They're in a plane crash, and they were the pilot. Yeah. Um, I would tell them this, Jim, no matter if it's their own fault or just something to happen to them, um, God is there with them and he is allowing it to happen for a reason. Um, I tell people all the time, if I could go back and rewrite the script, I would. That would have been for me. Uh, That plane lands safely. We all walk off the plane, get rebooked and everything's fine. But I don't write perfect scripts and God does. So no matter what has happened in your life, that is God's allowing it to happen for a reason. He, he wants you so badly. He's going to let this stuff happen so that you'll eventually come to him. So that's, that's what I tell people. If you have your own plane crash, hang in there and get an ally to fight that battle with you. And that ally is God. And you'll never find a stronger uh, ally, a more powerful ally than God fighting that battle with you. So if you got the best ally in the world, uh, you might as well grab him because he's free. So you said something very powerful, and I think some guys are probably scratching their head. In one breath, you said that God allows horrible things to happen. In the next breath, you said that God is your ally. There may be guys out there right now who are who their faith is, they're struggling to understand Jesus, saying, how can he be my ally and hurt me at the same time? What would you say to those guys? Yeah. I would say this, and and, uh, and and I'll preface by by saying that I I look back at the plane crash, Jim, and I've done every done this every day for thirty two years, and I ask why? Why yes. did this happen? 
what is, also, I didn't mention this. A little boy in front of me, he's in the seat right in front of me, died in the crash. He's two years old. I got my whole life. Uh, he's got his whole life ahead of him. I'm 29 years old. I'm spared down any serious injuries, and he's gone. And I think about that boy all the time, yeah. and I think, why? Why did that happen? Why, why was I on that flight? Why did that little boy have to die? Why did 112 people die in that crash? And I have never gotten the answer. And so once I realized I would never get that answer, Jim, that I stopped asking the question so often. So I don't know why things happen. I really don't. I don't think anybody does. But I trust God enough to know that he has a reason for allowing this stuff to happen. Would I have written the script differently? Absolutely. I I would from, from day one with this plane crash, from moment one. But I don't write perfect scripts. And all that means is this. I need to trust God. I yeah. look back at the plane crash and, you know, in this too, Jim, I think when I get to heaven, my first question is going to be, why did this plane crash happen? Why was I on board? Why did this little boy have to die in this crash? Why did 112 people die? And when God tells me the answer, I think I'm going to laugh. I'm going to laugh with joy because it's all going to make sense. But until yeah. that moment, I feel a lot more like crying than I do laughing, which means one thing. I got to trust God because I yes. know he has my best interest. Well, and you know, that's so powerful. I mean, Jerry, that's so powerful. And one of the things that that people need to realize is, you know what? Sometimes a man-made airplane engine blows up. Yeah. Not God's fault. Sometimes yeah. uh, a drunk driver gets behind a wheel and kills somebody. That's not God's fault. You know, and we live in a fallen world where broken people and hurting people hurt people. And and mechanical things go out, and I I think sometimes we blame God for things that uh, that aren't God's fault, but God wants to walk us through. Can you? I I, I can tell by talking to you, you're going to know this verse. Can you tell us about the impact of Romans eight twenty eight on your life? Yeah, uh, that's a yeah. All things happen for the good to those who love the Lord. I'll tell you this, Jim. I struggled with that for a long time. Yeah, I, I bet. I, I, like I read that and I go, okay. Literal interpretation is plane crashes are good, cancer is good, uh, COVID nineteen is good. It all happens for the good to those who love. Man, I struggled with that for a long time. Yeah, I think it means this, Jim. I, I think it means you have to trust God. His ways are not our ways. His, his his mind is not our mind. And he has a reason for allowing things to happen. I had this discussion the other day. It's like, why did God allow COVID-19? Literally millions of people have died. from this. There's almost a million people in the United States who, who have died now. It's 850,000 people, I think, to date. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. God could take COVID away. He, so who knows what the reason for that is. But God has the reason because he's God. And he knows what's best for us. Does COVID-19 seem what's best for us? No, it doesn't. Does a plane crash seem? No. Cancer, uh, you know, uh, uh, the experience you've had after your surgery, I, those, don't, those things don't make sense. But when God tells us all things work for the good, for those who love the Lord, I trust that. I believe that. I don't know why, but I'm going to believe it. Well, and the last part of that verse says, and are called according to his purpose. And we know that we're all called according to his purpose. It's just a matter of have we decided, and this is so powerful. Guys, I hope you're listening to this. The bottom line today is, do you trust God? Do you trust God with your wife who's sick right now or a kid who's sick? Do you trust God even though you're unemployed right now? Do you trust God even though your sin has created a plane crash? Do you trust God 
even during times when you just don't know what's going to happen. That, that is really powerful, powerful, powerful that really when we are headed towards a plane crash, experiencing a plane crash or dealing with the effects post plane crash, it all comes down to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And I can say this, guys, too. It's not, it's not easy. It is not easy to trust God when things are just falling apart and your plane crash hits and you don't know what to do about it. And there's probably nothing to do about it other than to turn to God. It's not easy. But as long as you trust God, he's going to work through this thing and, and make it for the best for you and for his glory. So, yeah, absolutely, Jim. That's what it comes down to. And I wake up every morning saying that same thing. God, I trust you today, no matter what happens, good or bad or in between. I'm going to trust you today because I know that you have my best interest at heart. So is it easy to do? No, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's hard to say it and it's hard to do it. But that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust him. No question. Man, that is so powerful. Hey, hey Jerry, I have a, a weird question. Is there a way for guys to watch this, the actual crash video that looked like a YouTube yep. video? What is that? How can a guy access that video? Yeah. Yep. Easy to get to, Jim. Just do a search for United Flight 232 and it'll pop up. Um, it's about it's about a minute long or so. Yeah. Yeah. And the story behind that is, is interesting. Um, there was a local TV station in, in Sioux City with uh, alerted to potential disaster. There was a word that was out that there was a crippled plane was going to try to crash land in Sioux City. So this guy scoots out to the airport, turns his camera on, and just happens to to film this this crash. One of the very few instances in aviation history where a crash is recorded. So yeah, to answer your question, easy to get to United Flight 232. It'll pop up on YouTube, and you'll be able to watch it real easily. And guys, we'll include that link in our show notes. And yeah, it's interesting when you, nowadays people would say, well, what? But this is 1989. There are no cell phones. Yeah. Uh, I don't think video, right. I, were video, I don't know if they had, I don't know what kind of recording devices people were using back then. You know. <laughs> so, uh, wow, that's power. I appreciate that. I really want to encourage our guys to watch that video. But more than anything else, guys, want to encourage you guys to trust God. And so here, here's my action item for you guys today. Listen, this is our boots on the ground moment. My question is, to, where are you heading towards a plane crash? Where are you involved in a plane crash? I want you to go back to podcast episode 514, which is the one right before this one. And it's it's teaching you and talking to you about singing a new song in 2022. It's a message that I gave at Maranatha Church in Wyoming, Minnesota. So Wyoming's a town, Minnesota's a state. And uh, check that out. That'll really help you, I think, to chart a course for your life in 2022 of trusting God, of relying on his goodness in your life. Jerry, man, thanks so much uh, for coming on today and taking the time to share your wisdom experience. I, uh, you know, whenever guys come on the show, I never know how it's going to go. You just never know. And uh, this has been so powerful uh, for me and for our guys. And so on behalf of the men on the arena, I just want to say a hearty thank you. You're very welcome, Jim. I was blessed and honored to be on your show. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, guys, hey, make sure you head on over to meninthearena.org. Grab your free copy of my book, Tell Them What Great Fathers Tell the Sons and Daughters. Uh, guys, you're going to love this book. It's a great resource. It is free. And make sure you click join our program. Sign up for one of our many virtual teams that happen with guys all around the world make sure you click that program we'll have somebody get a hold of you asap and plug you into a team until next time feel the wet sand on the arena floor 
Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. You've been listening to the Men in the Arena podcast. If you hunger to be your best version, then join thousands of men from around the world in our Men in the Arena forum on Facebook. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of biblical manhood. Make sure to explore our website at meninthearena.org, sign up for the weekly equipping blast, and take advantage of our many free resources designed to help you become your best version of a man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, Everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.